Well, I want you to imagine it's September 8th, 2009. It's about a little over, almost eight years ago. Uh, where were you then? Well, imagine you're, you're, you're not where you were. Uh, imagine you're a Marine serving in Afghanistan. It's just before dawn, and as our commander-in-chief retells the story, a patrol of Afghan forces and their American trainers are on foot walking up this narrow valley to meet with a group of elders. And suddenly, all over the village, the lights go out. And then it happens. About a mile away, Dakota Meyer, who was then a corporal and a staff sergeant, Juan Rodriguez Chavez, could hear the ambush over the radio. It was the whole valley, was, it was as if the whole valley was exploding and Taliban fighters were unleashing a firestorm from the hills, from the stone houses, and even from the school. And soon the patrol was pinned down, taking ferocious fire from three sides and men were being wounded and killed. And Dakota's friends, four of them, were surrounded and pinned down and he asked for permission to go in four times. And four times he was told no. It's too dangerous. One of Dakota's high school teachers says, when you tell Dakota he can't do something, then he will do it. And some of us know that mindset. And as Dakota said of his, his trapped teammates, I, I, I couldn't leave them behind. Those were my brothers. I couldn't just sit back and watch. And so the story of what Dakota did next will be told for generations. He told Juan, we're going in. And so Juan jumped into the Humvee and took the wheel, and Dakota took the turret. And they went in. They weren't defying orders, but they were going in to do what they thought was right, and they went straight into this kill zone. Dakota's upper body and head were exposed to the blizzard of AK-47s and machine guns and mortars and rocket-propelled grenades. And coming upon Afghan wounded soldiers, Dakota jumps out not the people he goes in to intend to save, he jumps out and loads each of them into the, the Humvee, each time exposing himself to the enemy fire. And they turned around and drove the wounded back, and those who were there call it the most intense combat they'd ever seen. Dakota and Juan would have been forgiven for not going back in, but as Dakota says, you don't leave a man behind. And for a second time, they went back into the inferno and Juan at the wheel, swerving to avoid the explosions that were coming all around them and Dakota at the turret. And when one gun jammed, he would grab another and another, going gun after gun. And again, they came across wounded Afghans. And again, Dakota jumps out and loads them in and brings them back to safety. For a third time, they went back in. Insurgents running right up to the vehicle and Dakota has to fight them off with his hands. Up ahead, a group of Americans, some wounded, desperately trying to escape, not the soldiers he's going after. Juan drives up the Humvee and wedges it between the oncoming fire to create a shield. And with Dakota on the guns, they helped those Americans get back to safety as well. A fourth time, they went back in. Dakota was now wounded in his arm. And he said, I, I didn't think I was going to die. I knew it. But still, they pushed on. 
going after the wounded, and they went back into that fury again for a fifth time. They went back in. They seemed, the fire seemed to be coming from every window, every valley, every doorway. And then when they finally got to those trapped, Dakota jumps out and he runs towards them, drawing all the enemy's fire onto himself, bullets kicking up the dirt all around him. And he, kept, he keeps going for those four Americans, laying there together as one team. And Dakota and the others who joined them knelt down, picked up their comrades, and threw all the bullets through all the smoke and through all the chaos, he safely brings them back one by one because as Dakota says, that's what you do for a brother. Dakota saved 36 lives that day and was awarded the Medal of Honor. Today, on New Year's Day, I want us to hear of a rescue like that. I want us to hear of a, a hero who goes in after what he loses and reclaims his brothers and sisters. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to be looking at Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak this morning, Lord, that your word would, would shine and we would be able to see and hear from you directly from your word. So God, we ask that uh, we would see the, our lostness and we'd see you, the one finding and seeking us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're getting back to our series, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew, um, and that's uh, our series that was, we're looking at all of the Gospels, and we're trying to, to get a, a glimpse of a, a different slant on Jesus that you may have thought you never knew, a, a, a different look at who Jesus is. And today we're coming to probably one of the most uh, popular parables of all time, or right before them. Uh, we're coming to one of the most popular passages in Luke 15. And usually in Luke 15, we think of that popular parable of the prodigal son. 
Uh, we're actually going to hit that next week, I believe. Um, but prior to that, there are two parables that Jesus says uh, to try to uh, answer this question that the Pharisees kickstarted back in verses 1 and 2. And so in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes, scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so the, the thrust of this passage, of this chapter, is the parables. I don't want us to forget why Jesus told these parables. Uh, why, why did Jesus tell them? It wasn't just to find a different way to relate to people at the time, though he wanted to do that. But he told these parables precisely because they misunderstood him. They misunderstood what Jesus was about. This was a Jesus they never knew, and I hope it's not a Jesus we never know. Verse 1 says, tax collectors and sinners were drawn to him. And that's phenomenal. I mean, there's something about Jesus that doesn't deter those on the fringes of society. We don't usually think Christianity does that. But there's something about who Christianity is about, the leader of it, that he doesn't deter those on the margins the sinners and the tax collectors actually want to eat with them, and he doesn't deny them. He loves people differently. He loves people that were different from him, and he actually truly cared for them, and they actually wanted to be with them. I mean, think of the people who, who weren't even claiming themselves to be religious, wanted to go eat with Jesus. And that, that's odd. And you think, that's beautiful, actually. And then the scribes and Pharisees do, they do what? They grumbled or muttered. Uh, notice how central, though, food is to Jesus' ministry. The, the, the scribes and Pharisees aren't angry because Jesus is talking to these people. They are angry because he ate with them. They are angry because he's eating with them. And food is, is a big deal in that day, right? You invite someone over to your home. You're offering friendship. You're offering hospitality. You're offering acceptance, and it's a big deal today, too. You invite someone into your home, you're offering the same things. And that shocked the Pharisees. A guy named Robert, Robert Karras says, In Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. Remember earlier in Luke, we're told how Jesus does his mission. How does Jesus do mission? The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, right? The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a glutton, one who eats too much, a drunkard, one who drinks too much. Jesus is being accused of doing these things because he was so passionate about meeting with people and eating with them and drinking with them. And so they assumed he was doing it too much and called him a glutton and a drunkard. Then his disciples are, are, are chastised for not fasting. And so you see Jesus' ministry, Jesus does his evangelism, his discipleship with joy, with celebration at his house, around a dinner table with a good piece of grilled fish and a loaf of bread, and a bottle of wine. I just, I love the simplicity of that. Opening up his home 
to people who seem to be un- unacceptable and invites them in to eat with them. And that's how he did mission. This is why we push community groups at this church. right? We, if you're not part of one, we really, really encourage you to c- consider doing that this year. To, to go into someone's home and to eat with them, it, it, you, you start being a part of the community here. If, you're, if you want to be a leader, we're always accepting of those. That's not part of the sermon. But just on the very basic organic level, Jesus does mission at the dinner table, inviting people into his homes and loving them and caring for them in the, just a very, very practical way. His grace, his excess of grace is linked to his excess of food. By giving someone food, you are caring for them not just in this ethereal way, but in this very practical way of offering hospitality now and loving them now, giving grace to people who really needed it. So the central question for the Jews those Jews was, with whom can I eat? Who am I allowed to eat with? And so for Jesus, doing lunch was doing theology. He was answering that question. Who can you eat with? Is, it answers the theological question of, of who's acceptable. Who can, you, who can you do ministry with? And so, who do you eat with? Who, who do you invite into your home? Who do you invite over for dinner? Who do you, who do you ask out to go to, to a lunch date? Jesus says, I have a specific reason I do that. I have a purpose with my lunch dates. It's for the lost. And he tells this parable in verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? Now, I think for you and me, when we hear this parable, I think usually when we see the, the image of the, the shepherd caring for the sheep, there's this tendency to get these kind of warm fuzzies about it, that The good shepherd is tending to his sheep, and he leads them beside still waters and loves them and protects them. And yes, those things will be true. But Jesus is telling this parable to the scribes and to the Pharisees who just lashed out at him for eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so he's saying, he's using sheep as an image to insult their pride. Sheep, what do we know about them? Not the smartest animals, right? You, know, you, have, you have dumb, dumber, dumbest, and sheep, right? That their sheep is at the very bottom of that list. They're these impulsive animals that they lose directions continually. So that if you lose a sheep, it doesn't know it's lost. You lose a sheep and you go and find it and you go, Oh, I found you. Yes. The sheep doesn't jump into your arms and say, Thank you for looking for me, for searching the world for me. The sheep goes, nah, and goes the other way right? The sheep has no recollection that it was lost. And so when you do find the sheep, what does it say you have to do with the sheep? The shepherd goes to the sheep and binds its feet and puts it over its shoulders and has to carry it the whole way home because the sheep is that dumb. What is Jesus saying about you and me? I mean, that's who he's telling us. That's who we are. Have you ever lost your dog or your cat? 
and you go, oh, found you. And there's this warm embrace, right, maybe. And then you go, all right, here's home. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Come on, boy. Some dogs and cats are different, right? I know that. Typically, the dog will come with you. The sheep will go, sure. Ooh, grass. I think I need to eat. <laughs> sheep have this compulsivity to eat grass. They have to go eat the grass. It is a must. Grass, I need grass. Grass, I need grass. If there is a giant cliff between me and the grass, I have to go off that cliff and die to get to the grass. But even if I find a way to get down to the grass without dying and eat all of the grass that's in the area, now I'm stuck and I'm dead because I went all the way down here and I can't get back up. The, the sheep have this innate have to to go get that grass. They have no con concept of where they're at, that they're lost, or anything like that. Sounds like us sometimes, right? <laughs> I mean, this is the why Bible is making this point, right? I mean, you guys think of our, our New Year's resolutions. This year, all right, we're going to do it this year. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to lose my weight. Free food and drinks? <laughs> I think I could go to that party. Uh, <laughs> can't say no to that. Or if I mean, you think of, I, I tell my kids, okay, sit on these steps. Put your butt right on the steps. One, two, three. We're going to go in this order. Do this. Okay. Is that a piano over there? <laughs> like, it's just like this compulsivity of, of like distraction, distraction, distraction. The Bible is trying to make a point about us here. We go for it. We have this, this compulsivity of, of uh, I, I don't see what, what God actually has for me that's actually good for me, and we have to go towards something. And so God is trying to tell us, if we can't just send a teacher to these people. We, God says, I can't just send a teacher to these sheep and say, okay, you're going to go over that mountain and take a right at the valley. Jesus says, I sent you teachers, and you killed them. We don't need a teacher. We need a shepherd who will actually chase us down and bind our hands and throw us over his shoulders and carry us all the way home. Now, notice the natural response to, to finding that which is lost. I mean, it's more of a, an obvious. Verse 5, And when he has found it, he lays it on its shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I mean, isn't it a beautiful thing when you find that which you're lo you've lost? There's like this anxiety that's just building and this pain, and you find it, and it's this exhale. <sighs> I'm okay again. And then Jesus tells another parable right after this about the, the woman who has ten coins and loses one. And when she finds it, she does the same thing. She goes and she calls her friends and neighbor, neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. If you lose something and then you find it, have you ever called anyone to tell them that you found it? <laughs> Maybe one person. <laughs> like if, if I lost my TV remote and I'm like, oh gosh, how am I going to do life anymore? Like, ah, oh, I, how do I turn the channel? I don't understand this world that has now I live in. And so I find the remote and I'm like, yes, yes. Patrick, I found the TV remote. <laughs> okay? <laughs> it would be his response. I didn't know you lost it. 
Or think about if, if you find your phone that you lose probably three times a day, or if you're my wife, you lose three times an hour, um, and she calls me and says, I found my phone. <laughs> Again? Okay, good. Call me at, three, at another hour. <laughs> uh, there. But imagine you lost something that was just so valuable to you. You lost a child. And the child comes back. Wouldn't you call your friend and say, I found them. They're safe. They're good. There's this rejoicing. I mean, we, we, we get excited over finding our wallet. That was all of our life, all of my, my bank account, my, everything I knew. We get excited over finding our keys. Now I'm not restrained in my home. Exponentially, the father rejoices over finding his lost children who were damned to hell, who were going to experience torment for eternity. I mean, of course, joy. Of course, celebration. That's the obvious response here. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said, Who sought after the lost sheep? Who sought after the lost sheep and the lost coin? Was it not the loser? I mean, the one that lost it, not the loser. But who was the loser? Was it not the... Was it not he who once possessed them? And who then was that? Was it not he to whom they belonged? And so what Tertullian is trying to push, a, push here is, if there is joy and rejoicing over finding that which was lost, there was heartache over losing it. And so if there is joy over finding and, 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 and saving you, there was heartache by the Father in heaven over losing you, so much so that he would come in here like a good shepherd and find you and bind you and take you all the way home. And the Pharisees saw Jesus doing this. And what do they do? Joy, right? Reaching those on the margins of society, those that that need him. And they muttered, and they grumbled. I mean, who responds that way? Those who don't think they're sheep. Those who don't think they're dumb sheep that need a shepherd is who responds that way. Because the Pharisees' law was this. Let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to the law. In other words, separating from them took precedence over reclaiming them, bringing them back to God through forgiveness and redemption. It was The Pharisees couldn't see how deeply flawed that they were, and so they would say, let's not associate with the wicked because they might get us dirty. And you just, let's not associate with the wicked? Who are you going to talk to? Thankfully, Jesus didn't do that for us. Thankfully, Jesus didn't follow their own laws. It makes me think of uh, a great movie. Maybe some of you have seen it. Little Miss Sunshine. Seen this? It's the story of a, a girl who gets accepted into a, a beauty contest, and her and her um, bumbling, dysfunctional family drives across uh, 
country to, to get to this beauty contest. Um, and the girl's name is Olive. She's this awkward little girl. Um, got the big rimmed glasses. Um, not your typical beauty pageant contestant. Um, but at one point, she says, I don't want to be a loser because daddy hates losers. And her father is this failed motivational speaker <laughs> who just uses these, these cliche aphorisms and berates losers. And the, iron, the irony, of course, is that he himself is a loser. Uh, and in one of his speeches, he says, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are winners and there are losers. And when it says losers, the, the camera pans to his family <laughs> and his foul-mouthed mother, his suicidal brother-in-law, his son who refuses to speak, and his downtrodden wife desperately trying to hold them all together. And then him, the failed businessman who can't accept his failure. And then just out of fun, they, they, they make the point even further with the VW van that they drive across country, right? The, the VW van that they drive is dysfunctional and is a loser itself. That the, the door falls off, the horn's constantly on, they have to run, push it to start. And all this just kind of collides in this epic, uh, in the climax of the movie, where this dysfunctional family meets this, the beauty pageant. This world of, of perfection, of respectable, manicured, without blemish or fault. And of course, there's the undertone of envy and rivalry and arrogance um, that every world has. But the dad has to come to this realization. I'm the broken one. I'm the loser. And that's what Jesus is trying to, to drive home the point with the Pharisees here, crashing their, their world of self-reliance and perfection and pride and superiority and saying, you're the losers. They're the ones who Jesus actually says bluntly earlier in, in Luke, he says, truly, truly, I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will be in the kingdom of heaven before you. I mean, if I'm a disciple there. I'm like, oh, yeah, Jesus. <laughs> Tell him. But Jesus is trying to say, he's coming for the losers. He's coming for the, the margins of society, the outsiders, those who've made a mess of their lives. Really, he's coming for ordinary people, right? And then in that rescue of those people, of the sheep, something happens that the sheep is now transformed and it repents. And repentance is kind of a scary word many times, but repentance, um, I mean, it, it's the things that we felt we had to have that lose their power. They lose their satisfaction. That uh, Things we, we said, I have to go after. That, you know, I, I don't have to have that anymore. I don't have to have that relationship anymore. I don't have to have that new piece of technology anymore. I don't have to have that dessert anymore. I don't have to have that lust anymore. I don't have to have this or that or that. That's the old way. That's, that's sheep talk, that I have to have that grass. And then repentance is coming in and saying, it's giving you the freedom to say, I don't have to have that anymore. I can actually rest in the good shepherd's arms and what he will provide for me. It's freedom to be restrained and, and to the freedom of following his will. And then Jesus makes very clear in verse 7 the, just the motivation of the heavenlies. What, what motivates the angels and God himself? 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, seeing the outcasts, seeing those who don't deserve it, the margins of society, repent and believe is what motivates the heavenlies. And I would say that's what motivates this church. To actually reach real people with real sin right here in Waco. Grace is not meant to be this, this ethereal thing. It's to meant to be to actually practice this forgiveness over painful things that go on right here. Real grace meets real people with real sin. It's what motivates this church. It's what motivates Jesus himself, the good shepherd, to leave the 99. He actually leaves the 99 to go after the one, the one who doesn't deserve it, the one who, who's run away astray, didn't even know it. Jesus leaves the 99 for the lost one. And William Hendrickson, a great commentator, says, there's four attitudes we can have towards the lost. We can hate them. We can be indifferent towards them. We can accept them when they come to us. Or we can seek them. And I think most of us would, would not want to be a part of that first group of hating them. I think many of us can fall into two and three, just being indifferent towards the lost. I don't even think about it. Or if they come, of course I would accept them. Of course I would, I would, I would love them. But category four is altogether different. That you actually leave the 99 to seek out the one. To seek the lost. Actually going after those that don't even know they're lost. And so Jesus' rescue is far more heroic and far more daring than a Marine going in after uh, finding his four soldiers stranded and straight into the kill zone, into the inferno, risking his life for his fellow soldiers. Though he saved 36 lives that day and got the, the Medal of Honor, deservedly so. Jesus goes in and rescues not his friends, but he rescues his enemies. He goes in to save those that hate him, those that kill him. And he doesn't get a medal of honor. He gets nails in his hands for that. He takes away our slavery to ourself. He loosens the chains and he picks you up on his shoulders and brings you all the way back. And so if you've never trusted in that good of a shepherd, I encourage you to trust in that shepherd today. It's in his arms, not in your arms. So this year, I want to ask you to see your sheepery. It's the word I created. See your sheepery. And see the good shepherd. And invite some outcasts to your home. Because that's what Jesus has done for you. Let me end with this poem from Dorothy Sayers, The Fair Shepherd. Fair shepherd must weep. He has lost his sheep and cannot tell where to find them. Far from their home, they wander alone and never will look behind them. He lay by night in his chamber bright and dreamed he saw them dying. And when he awoke, his heart it was broke, for he heard them still a-crying. 
Then up he took his staff and crook, determined for to find them. He found them indeed, but they gave him no heed and cast his words behind them. He was hailed away on a good Friday to Calvary Hill hard by, mocked and denied, struck through the side, and hung on a tree to die. Through death and hell he searched as well, and still in the world doth roam. He hath done what he could, as a fair shepherd should, to bring his lost sheep home. Let's pray.